Hey everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world, and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our Substack. You'll find a link in the description. For someone to follow you on Twitter, it's not like a mindless scroll on Twitter, really. Like you're reading. So you're actually actively engaged in the thing and the piece of content. And then to decide to follow that person, you had to be like actively engaged, think it was interesting enough that you want to get more from that person. And so you click follow. I think there's a really interesting opportunity there, especially with niche, like niche creators where you like pick an angle. There's all these interesting accounts on Twitter, but these people have built really fervent followings around one specific yeah. thing there's this like franchise the wolf of franchises i think well actually you know like work week yeah. is another example of a company yeah. that's doing this um i think quite well the wolf of franchises launched a SaaS product yeah. for like people that are looking to acquire franchises because that to me is like so clear down the fairway of at least what i view the future is looking like welcome to media empires where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires Our aim is to extract the secrets of top tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empire or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones, let's dive in. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short form clips directly from Riverside, because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code Media Empires to get a 20% discount. Today, our guest is Saho Bloom, a creator entrepreneur who's pioneering a new model of company building and audience building. Each week, Sahil's content reaches over 1 million people across his social insights and newsletter, The Curiosity Chronicle. I recorded this episode with Sahil in a live recording in New York at BlockWorks offices. We experienced technical difficulties with one of the mics at start, but we thought the content was too good to skip. Past the 25-minute mark, it clears up, and you'll be able to hear Sahil much richer and clearer. In the 2010s, uh, being a founder, the, the hot thing was to raise a lot of money. Uh, and be a venture-backed founder. And I feel like in the last couple of years, there's been this other path that that has emerged among our peer set, and it's be something of a creator entrepreneur. Where you, you know, the Greg Eisenberg has also really popularized this, who's been on the show. Don't just go out and raise a ton of money, but maybe have a personal holding company, make some cash flow, then reinvest it, incubate businesses, own more of those businesses. Not every business has to be uh, a venture scale, sort of zero, all or nothing bet, but you can have these service businesses that are more de-risked. And I feel like you're at the forefront of, of this trend. I know it's been somewhat accidental, but first off, how would you describe what this trend is and where you fit into it? Yeah, I mean, I think in general... There's like this arrow of progress, if you will. Do you know Josh Wolf? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so Josh has this whole thing of like directional yeah. arrows of progress that I love, just as like a general framework for thinking about these things. And I think in general, you think about commerce, and commerce follows attention. And so in the early days, attention was owned by these massive conglomerates. Yeah. You know, P&G, yeah. and John. Like they owned all the attention because they owned all the airwaves, like yeah. all television, 
print advertising, they were the ones that controlled all of that. So commerce followed that. They actually like owned all of the commerce around these yeah. things. And what we've seen with the social media age is that attention has become decentralized and we can have these tiny little pockets of attention all over the world. Like I can go create this tiny little pocket of my little nerdy sphere of the internet. You can go create one. We can all go have these little pockets of attention and then commerce follows that. And I think what we are is in the like second or third inning of the commerce actually following that. Yeah. And like someone like Mr. Beast on a grand scale has shown that there's real, real power in that or the Kardashians or these people that are doing these things on a bigger scale, but we're starting to see these tiny little pockets of really interesting opportunities to go build, you know, not necessarily billion dollar franchises and businesses, but really interesting, like seven, eight figure businesses around these micro pockets of attention. And so I think that that is like the broader overarching arrow of progress that I'm at least observing that I find very interesting. And when I think about it, I see this B2B opportunity that is just huge. And, you know, early on creator, like influencer marketing, it was all about consumer opportunities. Yeah. It was all D to C. It was like, okay, what's this, you know, hair care product that I can sell you or what's this, you know, uh, makeup or whatever it was, because that was what made sense. It was like, oh, okay, these people have an audience of consumers. Let's yeah. sell something to all of them. The B2B opportunity that people are now starting to expose as being real is I would argue even more interesting because for most creators, I can't go sell you enough shampoo bottles to make a living, Yeah. but I might be able to get enough $5,000 a month ticket, you know, high ticket services clients to make a really, really good life and a really good living if I can find the right operator to run it. So that becomes then the real challenge. And when you think about the bottleneck around these things, it becomes the operators because there's plenty of creators who have sufficient scale to go and do something like this. There's basically none that actually know how to go and operate a business or do the investing side of like where to allocate capital. Creators aren't capital allocators, really. They're right. Like creativity allocators. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and that's what they do really well. Very few are incredible capital allocators or incredible operators. So the people that are able to actually go partner with and find the operators to go run these things and yeah. create a good structure that allows you to go and work and do this are really going to have an enormous opportunity over the next, you know, call it 10, 15 years. So let, let's draw out this, this opportunity a little bit. Like if this B2B sort of transition that you describe happens, how does the world look like? Um, like what, 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 what's, and where is the opportunity? Like, how do you take advantage of that? What does that look like? Yeah. So if you think about B2B and like the traditional of these micro B2B businesses, I'm not talking like when we say B2B, just a level set, I'm not talking about the like B2B SaaS company that's getting venture backed by craft at a, you know, 20 million post or whatever. I'm talking about like your mom and pop services business, like smaller regional local services businesses that are doing you know, a higher ticket sale for whatever it might be. It could be like, it could be like video services. It could be like, you know, some sort of agency, marketing, branding, design, whatever it might be, that kind of stuff. Those type of things have previously not had a really good distribution advantage in how they pursue things. They might have a great product. They might have the best designer in the world going to the websites, but they had no way to reach people. And so their way of reaching people was like, I hope I can like, have some good content that I can put out and maybe get SEO over a long period of time, or maybe I can like, you know, go pay for social ads and that's how I'll reach people and hope that I can like buy enough potential leads that like at a $10,000 price point for a project that it works out. Well, now you go match that person with someone who has a following based around design. Like maybe they were a yeah. designer at some big tech company and now they're doing freelance design work or whatever yeah. it is. You match those two people together. All of a sudden you have an enormous advantage because you have distribution right. matched with operations. And so as I think about operationalizing it, it's just like, 
how are you kind of combining combining edges in a way that like creates this really synergistic yeah. one plus one equals three type environment? Like take someone whose distribution is really, really prime, take someone whose operational expertise is really prime and they come together and create this beautiful synergy. So it's like, let's give an example, like Harry Stebbings has his famous 20 minute VC podcast. It would be as if he also incubated like a uh, fund management services company or, or some service business that serves the customers that listen, the VC yeah. firms that listen to his podcast. I mean, a great example of this, frankly, just to like make it extremely obvious is this newsletter growth agency that I just yeah. co-launched with um, Nathan Berry, who's I know a friend of yours yep. as well, a friend of mine. Um, I've known Nathan for a while. He's become a close, close friend. ConvertKit, his business yeah. is a massive software business right. that does 50 million plus of ARR. Now it's yeah. a huge, like, you know, high enterprise value business. What they don't have is a services arm that actually helps you grow your newsletter. And I had talked to him about that because I'm a user of ConvertKit. I was yeah. like, hey, I really want to aggressively grow my newsletter. Who can do this for me at ConvertKit? The answer was no one. Right. And so I said to Nathan, I was like, we should actually start that. Let's go right. and find the right person that can do it for me. And then we can productize that and bring it to more people. Because if I'm thinking that, there's tons of people out there that yeah. are thinking that. And so we agreed to partner on it. We found a great operator who did it for me as the case study of building it. And then we're very credibly able to go out and say like, hey, yeah. I just did this. Here's the growth in my trajectory of my numbers. Yes. I've experienced the benefits of this. We're now productizing it. And anyone that wants to access this playbook can do it with us. And we will go into action on it for them. And that is like a perfect example of exactly this. Like it's something that I'm credible to talk about. There's clearly product audience fit. Yeah. Because I have tons of followers who are trying to build newsletters who follow me to try to learn yeah. things about that. And I'm able to go talk about it, have the distribution. And then we have an operator who's actually going to run it on a day-to-day -day basis that's going to own a big chunk of the business. And it's going to be their thing to go and build, yep. and build a team out and build the capacity. The Harry example, like he does podcasts and he's launching and scaling all these different podcasts. Why not have a podcast production business that's right. built alongside it that just leverages the playbooks that 20BC has used and it is able to go and expand them out to more people. Those are like the, I would say, like really obvious opportunities that exist yeah. out there. The less obvious ones that I think are actually going to be most interesting are these like super niche accounts that are existing now that you see on Twitter, like car dealership guy, yeah. strip mall guy, or um, you know Nick Huber, um, who is often controversial on Twitter, has done something really smart with like looking at the value chain around real estate, and which is where he kind of operates on a day to day basis, and figuring out you know where can he credibly have an offering along that value chain and like the cost segregation yeah. that they do. Um, to save people money with the accelerated depreciation on those assets is a perfect example. It's like he knew that people were getting those studies done or that they should be. And he had an audience of those people doing it. So go build a business to go offer that. And they've done, you know, a million and a half of revenue in like wow. nine months or something yeah. like that doing it. So I think those are all really interesting examples. And I think, again, we're like we're scratching the surface on the totally. to go and do it. Because, again, the most challenging part is the pairing of the operator with the yeah. person. If you don't find a good operator, you try to go into this with someone that's not set up for it or that doesn't have the capacity for it, it can be a disaster. Yeah. And then your face is on it as the creator, yeah. which is the biggest challenge and the biggest like risk for most creators is like you can attach yourself to something and try to go chase fast money. Yeah. But if it goes awry, whose head is on the chopping block? It's yours because yeah. you your face on the on the surface of it. And so what have you learned about finding that operator? Because I think you have like 10 plus companies or, or something you've spun out. And it's one thing, you know, you have a network and you found a few in your network, but at some point you tap out your network, right? Um, yeah. So what advice do you have for people of how to, how to find this operator or what things to avoid? Or You know, find the like one 10x person that can link you to all the other ones. Yeah. It's, uh, honestly, and it sounds 
it's easier said than done. Yeah. I have a massive advantage in this one, you know, friend and partner of mine named Hunter Hammonds, who will be much more well known in six months than he is today. Does he oversee one of the businesses or all of them? Um, several now, you know, probably five or six of them today. So he's like um, your COO or something. Yeah. I mean, we, we collaborate in a holding company that's cool. going to do a bunch of these and, you know, he has an incredible capacity to not only operate these early ones and go build it out, but also to find operators to go build out some of the sub ones that are yeah. being built along the way. And that's his core competency. That's what he's incredible at. I'm probably terrible at that. Like I'm probably a two yeah. out of 10. If you were to put me on a scale that he's a 10 out of 10. And so that's a great marriage. And what, what's his secret? Is he just connected to them already? Is he like a recruiter basically? He's built agencies Got it. for the last decade of his life. Got he it. built two eight figure agencies that he exited. Um, this is what he's lived and breathed is yeah. services, businesses, rapidly scaling and profitably scaling services businesses and that's the other thing is like very uh capital light to start yeah. these businesses which is again a huge advantage you don't have to go invest in a bunch of tooling or a bunch of inventory like the working capital model is beautiful it's negative working capital right like yeah. bringing in cash up front you pay me five grand a month and now i'm going to give you the services for a month yeah so i have the cash now i can go and invest in all these things along the way so as you grow you're actually generating cash you're not yeah. using it like a typical consumer business, if I were to go try to sell you a bunch of hair care products. Right. Um, so there's a really beautiful model there, if done well. Yeah. So just to set the playing field here, you have built this massive social following. And then what you've done is you've turned your cost centers into profit centers. So, um, and you basically are starting these services firms that you were paying and you said, hey, I have other people who I could um, sell the same service to, alternative profit centers, so things like design, things like video editing, things like newsletter growth. What are some of the other agencies that, you've yeah. that you could talk about? Yeah, the first one was um, really around personal brand. And it, this is like, you, you referenced this earlier that it kind of happened by accident. That's very true because the first one, that was an agency. I didn't even call it an agency because I didn't know what an agency was. Yeah. I started my career in private equity, spent the first seven years of my career, like head down, I was gonna go do that the rest of my life and be miserable. Uh, COVID hit and that, you know, allowed me to like take a step back and figure out what I wanted to do. But basically I had built a platform from like May of 2020 through the end of 2020, maybe like 75,000 Twitter followers or so. And I really like developed a clear playbook of what I thought worked, how to approach it, the cadence, the like strategy of how you're posting, when you're posting, the types of content, etc. A bunch of the startups I had invested in just personally, the founders started coming to me saying yeah. like, Hey, I want to do this, this too. Trend, like building in public seems powerful, you know, to generate a, you know, an advantage for recruiting new employees or for fundraising or for, you know, whatever it is along the way, amplifying product launches, et cetera. Can you help us do this? And I had these playbooks. And so I basically started like doing paid kind of advisory work, which I thought of as advisory work, but it was really like consulting agency yeah. work, um, really to just help them with those playbooks. And it wasn't doing any ghost writing because I didn't want to spend time writing and I like, I like writing for myself, but I wouldn't yeah. like, have liked writing for other people. And so yeah. it was really like strategy and, you know, agency work. And that became, I don't know, by like mid 2021, when I quit my job, that had become a 50 grand a month cash flow business. Wow. Um, because it was high ticket services and it was low time. And there was like, yeah. it was one call a week at most with these right. people to help on it because they didn't have time. They were running yep. businesses. Um, and that was what tipped my mind off to like, oh, these things that other people that are pursuing a similar path to me need yeah. are things that I actually am uniquely qualified to offer in some capacity or to speak to. And so how can I go do that at scale? But then to your point, like it was the Amazon model of like, look at the things that are cost centers for you and how can you turn those into profit centers? So 
you know, personal branding agency, that, that little mini one, personal one has kind of turned into now a bigger business that has an operator and a CEO that runs it. And, you know, now they offer like premium ghostwriting stuff if yeah. you want it and kind of growth support, et cetera, all these different things, the newsletter business, you know, video editing, animations, design, web development stuff um, has been a big one just because I've had to like engage in a bunch of websites along the way and the company that was doing that for me I invested in and now a YouTube production one's going to be the next big one that we're going to launch you know it's going to be basically our model which we haven't you know talked about all that much is like figuring out how to operationalize this for creators is the real secret sauce and you know this, this partner of mine and myself that you know we've been kind of musing on is like is there an opportunity to go and do that is to like operationalize this for creators and help them connect with the right operators to go and build these yeah. things out. Um, because again, like creators don't have the core competency of finding these operators, diligencing these operators, making sure the operators yeah. are competent enough to go and build that. That's not what the creator wants to do. The creator wants to do the creative work, yeah. continue to do that. But the challenge for a lot of creators too, is like the durability of the creator path is basically negligible. Yeah. No one wants to talk about that. Yeah. But if you're on a normal career path, you have longevity built into your system. Yeah. If you show up at a W-2 job, if you show up and work reasonably hard and the company doesn't like completely go under, you get your like two to 5% pay raise every year, you can work for the next 30 years and you'll be fine. You'll take yep. care of people. And the longevity in the arc is sort of built in. In the creator path, you don't have that at all. Right. right? Like you eat what you kill and no creator has ever created for like 30 years. Right. They normally, I mean like, Tim Ferriss had his big wave with the book yeah. and he was sort of quiet, but now he has the podcast. That's like right. the second big wave. Very few creators have that second big wave. Right. Most have the sort of growth wave and then they sort of lose relevance or slow down. Their growth curve kind of stops. And then what do you do the rest of your life? Yeah. Like it's like, what is your life? What are you building? Yeah. What had your ability? I knew that when I was going in because I just thought about it from like this downside focused private equity mindset yeah. of like, oh shit, this isn't going to be here forever. Yeah you know, being able to get people to pay for sponsor slots in my newsletter. I'm not going to want to do that when I'm like 50. Yeah. It seems crazy. Like I need to build things that have durability that are outside of me needing to create new content on a daily basis. YouTubers, like you're not going to want to create a video a week for the rest yeah. of your life. It is crazy to think about, but it, that's what you need to be thinking about if you're going to go build a life around these things. And so I also just think more creators eyes are going to open up to that. Yes. Yeah. We sort of have this like, unfolding of what the creator economy actually looks like. Totally. Yes. More creators are going to be businesses, build businesses on top of their content. Um, and what you want to do is help them find their operators um, and maybe take a percentage of their holding or company be the operator. or be the operator. Yeah. <laughs> so like COO as a service or something. Yeah. Go cool. build businesses with them. I mean, like Hunter helped launch um, Sam Parr and Cody Sanchez recently announced this viral cuts video cool. editing agency, like perfect example, like Sam and yeah. Cody or you know, investors alongside and, you know, the distribution hack and advantage is enormous. Like it's, totally. you know, over three, like two, two and a half, three million of ARR after 45 days yeah. in the business because you just have an immediate advantage. And so if you have the capacity and the operational chops to actually handle that capacity as a yeah. market, it's an enormous, enormous advantage. Totally. What do those um, agents, what do those deals typically look like when you team up with two other people who also have their own audiences and they invest some, like how do those companies typically get struck? Like how do those deals typically look? Yeah. I mean, I'd say the normal thing for a creator is owning like a significant minority stake of business. And that's been the position that I've always wanted to be in as a significant minority. I think when you get into majority stakes, something flips in people's minds of like, okay, 
they work for you or something. Yeah, exactly. And I don't really want that. Actually, yeah. I want the operator it to be their thing that they yeah. can go build and they can make decisions without having to ask me. Yeah. The worst thing in the world for me, I think about anti goals a lot. Like, what's my anti goal yeah. starting any of these businesses? Me having to spend five, ten hours a week on one of these businesses is my anti goal. Yeah. And that could happen if the person thinks they need to get my approval for big decisions. Yeah. They don't feel the ownership and the state and the skin in the game that this is their thing to go build. And I honestly like if it goes big. I want them to be cashing 100k a month checks for yeah, these businesses. And totally, to be getting really wealthy off of them and to be doing really well. And if it happens to have enterprise value, which very few of them I think do, right? But if they do happen to. I want that person to get really, really wealthy. Off yeah. Whatever the ultimate exit is. So that's been a big focus for me. Is like, you know, I say significant minority. Like I think anywhere between 20 and 40 percent is kind of how yeah. I think about a ballpark around that. I think when you get over 50 percent, it starts to just get to be a little bit of an awkward dynamic. Yeah. And obviously, there's nuance to that. If the business is something that, like, you are bringing the vast majority right. of the value to bear, and it's a very easy blocking and tackling operational lift, yeah. it's a little bit different. Um, but for most of these, I think that's like a good sweet spot. And do you pay this operator a salary day one? Do you I put, think so. so you, yeah, you, there's cash flow from day one. I think the operator yeah. should be drawing a salary day one. Yeah. All these businesses, again, it's, there's no investment really up there. Yeah. I had one where we made a nominal investment, but it hasn't been touched. It's yeah. sitting in the company bank account, it'll get totally. distributed. And I think it's important that the person have like, you know, and I'm not talking about them taking, you know, 300K a year salary, but like 10 grand a month. Yeah. If if their, if their opportunity cost is to have gone and been like a real agency operator, a real business operator somewhere where they'd be getting paid something steeper than that, it's nice to like kind of hedge the bet a little bit for them. Totally. Um, And again, like people operate best when they feel like they're, when they feel like they're loved. Yeah. So I think it's an important thing. What's really fascinating right now is that there tends to be two these binaries where you either get all the upside but no security. You know, you start a, a, a company um, or you get a big salary but not a ton of upside. You become an employee. And there's starting to be these things where maybe you team up with people like you or you go to work with Atomic or whatever where you can get a big salary and some upside. And a lot of people, I think, you know, they have family, they, they need the security, but they also want like 20% would be so meaningful time or, or whatever. Um, and so I think there's a lot of really talented people who would take that kind of trade off and not enough opportunities for them. So I think that yeah. is the opportunity of incubation or. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting point. And um, again, the cash flow profile of these businesses and the margin profile of a high ticket services business is really attractive. Like, yeah. There's a lot of cat. We're not talking about like 10% EBITDA margins where you just don't have a lot of cash. To yeah. Contribute. Like, a video editing business is going to be a 50% margin yeah. business, net margin, like cash sitting in a bank account accruing every single month. Because if you're smart about how you operate these and you're able to leverage nearshore, offshore talent for things that are sort of basic blocking and tackling, and you know, you're able to be intelligent about how you distribute, there's a lot of cash flow to go around. And yeah. so having a, you know, 50 plus percent stake, 60 right. plus percent stake in a business that you know, if you just like do rough math on it, like if you generate 2 million of ARR, um, which isn't a crazy stretch for a business that might have a five to 10 K uh, yeah. you know, month uh, average client, there's a million of cash to go around. If you don't yeah. like a, that right there is 500 grand of distributions that you right. might be getting plus pre-tax. And so you put that on top of a salary, like there aren't that many places right. in the world where you can do that and feel like you really own the direction of what you're doing. Yeah. You might be able to do that as like a senior PM at yeah. you know, Google or something like that. But then, you know, you're one of cog in the yeah. versus really feeling like a principal in the thing you're doing. Totally. So 
so where do you see this going? I'm curious how you think about your moonshot or like, you know, five years from now, I mean, you're already growing so fast. Is this, you just keep going linear in terms of like you're at 10 maybe and you'll be at a hundred. Like how do you think about that? I mean, I think it's doubling down on the stuff that works. Uh, my bet of what happens is that it's like a venture portfolio. Maybe not quite. It's probably more like a private equity portfolio where a few things will flop. Yeah. And I think they'll flop because, not because the idea won't work, but I think they'll flop because expectations with the operator aren't right. Something's not meaningful to me if it stays really, really small. Mm-hmm. And it might be meaningful to them, and that's totally fine, and that's great. But it probably doesn't make sense for me to spend energy or to spend capital in terms of the like real estate on my platform. And when I say that, I mean like I shouldn't be actively putting out posts and talking about a company that's generating like 100K a year. In revenue. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense relative to putting that same post towards something that might generate 10 million ARR. Right. So I think that what will happen is that like a few things will sort of fall by the wayside naturally and kind yeah. of like a natural attrition like that. And that a few will really work. And like, yeah. Um, you know, collaborating with the right operator, the right opportunity, the right time, you know, and that I'll really double down on the ones that work. I, and again, like my anti-goal is having to spend tons of time on these things. I want to bring what I can bring to bear, which is the distribution, the partnerships. Yeah. Like, I know all the creators in this landscape. I know all the people that I think are really talented. Um, I've spent tons of time with them. I come from an investing background. And so like there aren't, again, many creators who come from like, I was a GP at a private equity fund. Like I yeah. spent time diligencing businesses and doing this. The potential 10-year plan, big brain yeah. plan of doing something like this is to actually raise like a little mini private equity fund and go buy a business and do Interesting. this um, and do it a little more at scale. So rather than like greenfielding something from the ground up, go and try to like Ryan Reynolds something on a smaller yeah. scale and go buy a business that's you know already doing pretty well, bring in a great operator, add distribution cloud to it and see what happens. I mean, I'm a massive admirer of what Kim Kardashian's doing. Yeah, totally genius. I don't know a higher leverage way for her to go make a billion dollars than to do what they're doing today. I think it's incredible because she can clearly drive conversions with a consumer brand and things like my one. Um, So I think that's amazing. Like if you were to tell me like, hey, you got to go try to make a hundred million dollars in the next 10 years, that's not my goal. It's not what I'm going after. But if you told me that I had to go do that, otherwise you're going to kill me, that's probably what I would go do. At my holding company level, I'd probably try to go raise like, 10 on 50 or something right today yeah. and like and go try to use that to go yeah business. and let's say you had already raised it you had the 10 million and you had to go look at businesses to buy right now like what kinds of businesses would fit your sweet spot of like where you can add the most value what you yeah. think you believe in go buy like a direct response video editing business a business that does video editing for big brands yeah um because those brands are deploying so much freaking money yeah. into video, and they're only going to be deploying more over the coming years. Because yeah. Video is such a massive tailwind, and we're doing it right now on the like, like a, the question of like, are you hunting antelope or, or field mice? Yeah. Tim Ferriss talks about. Um, we're doing field mice. Like creators are field mice in the video editing game. Like hmm. editing my videos that I'm going to put out on social media and on Instagram or wherever at like five grand a month or whatever yeah. the price point is. That's field mice. Like athletic greens might spend like 10 million, a month, right. right? Like those, it's completely different games that you're playing. So there are businesses out there that are doing meaningful EBITDA, um, you know, like tens of millions of EBITDA, 5 million, whatever the number is that you could go buy one of those, add some distribution cloud to it. You could probably buy one of those small ones for like five X yeah. EBITDA and go sell it to one of the rollups in those space for like 15. Yeah, And if you double the EBITDA and then you sell it for three times the multiple is what you bought it for, like there's an enormous, enormous yeah. theory that you could take on that. Or if you just did it with your own money, totally. it's an enormous upside. When you quit your private equity job, yeah. 
that you were, you spent a bunch of years at. Did you, um, and this is well after you started your Twitter following, you were really building it up. Did you have a sense for what you just described could be the vision or what were you thinking? Absolutely not. Uh, I don't know if you, if you feel this way about your own life and career, but I've never known. I mean, I, if I had ever tried to predict even a year out, I would have been hilariously wrong yeah. in most cases. Um, I think like maybe in the first couple of years of my career, I might have been okay and right. But since, you know, COVID hit, like any one year out prediction would have been way, way off. Way wrong. Yeah. Um, so how did you develop the conviction then? I would say like my conviction is sort of built through earning insights over time. People point to like intuition or gut instincts yeah. as a reason for making a decision on things. But my, my general belief is that that is just earned. Like you earn it through the actions that you've taken all along the way. Like you see Roger Federer on the tennis court, you know, goes back to the baseline and makes some insane shot through his legs to like hit a winner to win some unbelievable point. And they're like, wow, that looked so easy. It was just his instinct. He just went and did it. But like that instinct was built over the fact that he probably spent 10,000 hours on the tennis court doing yeah. that exact type of thing and like building up the muscle memory. And so now when I have conviction around anything, I think it's just, I've had a lot of reps and screwed up a bunch of times on different things along the way that have allowed me to sort of like at least develop a perspective on what the playing field looks like. And it might be totally wrong. And I'm totally willing to like have that be the case along the way to like, I could get into something like this and be proven hilariously wrong about what it is. Um, yeah. And I'm not afraid to get punched in the mouth like that. Yeah. Metaphorically. Yeah. Maybe. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, one game I often like to play is like, hey, if I was, I mentioned Harry Stebbings, you know, what would I do if I was X person? And so if you look at someone like Harry, we were just saying how he could have a service business like the podcast agency. It sells to aspiring podcasters. We could have a, um, you know, sort of of uh, services that sell to VC firms since they all listen to his podcast. But then also, like you could try to compete with Carta. Like you could try to disrupt a platform that sells to, to VC firms. And I guess the example for, for you is right now you're focused on services, but there's another world in which you focus on like the underlying platforms. It, it's a bit harder to build the next LinkedIn than it is to build the next Carta. But is that something that you've ever considered? I haven't until you just said it, you know, like, look, you know, this network effects are really, really tough to hack. And even now we're seeing it in real time, like threads dropped yesterday. It'll be fascinating to see just how powerful a billion users slammed onto a new thing is versus the network effects built up over 10 plus years on a platform. It'll be a fascinating, like real world experiment of this. I've never really thought about the platform angle around these things. I think the physical infrastructure angle is interesting, like actually being able to go to people and build out the things that they need around this yeah. stuff um, is an interesting challenge that doesn't exist. I mean, the number of people that have no capacity to do something high quality like this with video or with um, with audio, etc. Uh, being able to go and offer that is interesting. I think of stupid little ideas that I think are fascinating and like a great way to go make a million bucks a year, maybe um, all the time. I don't necessarily think in the like hundred million dollar idea terms. I'm just not great at that just yeah. as like a core competency. But like, go and buy a little uh, sprinter van and like retrofit it with a sick video setup and go take it around and like park it in a big city and just rent it out on an hourly basis to podcasters and YouTubers and TikTokers and whatever. And I bet you could make a killing. Yeah. The, um, it is interesting. Yeah. It's like you were just saying, if you had to make a hundred million dollars, here's what you do. If you had to make a billion dollars, you probably have a different plan, but that plan has such higher risk. Yeah. I mean, I think I would do the hundred million dollar plan a few times over to make a billion. That's sort of the beauty of it is like, 
the billion dollar plan isn't coming up with a 10x better idea than the hundred million dollar plan. It's just doing it three or four times. Um, It's just like an iterated game on the hundred million dollar plan. I think that's probably the case for most people, by the way, is that like most people think they need to come up with the billion dollar idea. What they actually need to do is come up with the like $50 million idea that they can play an iterated game around and win on a consistent basis and get a little bit better at. That's the beauty of the private equity like model is that that's all you need to do. Because if you can go buy a business with mostly debt and mostly debt that's serviced by the company's cash flows, which is just ridiculous as just as a mathematical fact. And you can go do that a couple of times over and like get a little bit better at doing it each time. And you could actually add value. I mean, private equity, the entire industry has been built on this promise to LPs that they were going to create value for these companies by, you know, putting in McKinsey consultants. That is a very clear angle of value that you can create. Kim Kardashian has the most abundantly clear value add to a consumer business of any private equity fund in the world they don't need to do anything else all they need is for her to like buy a product that she can credibly speak to and for her to pump it out on her channels and the business will dramatically increase in sales and so to me i'm like that seems like the real big opportunity that exists out there for creators actually like that's the billion dollar opportunity and i think there are people that are starting to understand this like alex hormozzi doesn't necessarily do this with his brand and platform yet but like acquisition.com what he's trying to do is fundamentally that it's like a private equity fund that's you know kind of leveraging his playbooks and the things he's doing to go and expand those businesses that is a really really big opportunity though totally so you create services for the aspiring saho blooms out there and you're trying to productize that and even help them find uh operators have you thought about getting upside in in them or almost being like a talent agent like uh because right now you're solving creators Yeah, yeah, business creators like like yourself. What do you think about that? I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I think the idea of like incubating creators and incubating operators yeah. is a really cool model. And I think we will pursue that, you know, in the future. Morning Brew is doing a little bit of that. I think it was Money with Katie was like maybe one of the first ones. She had built this like niche audience around Excel and, you know, different money things and primarily for a female audience. And she was gaining some traction. And they're basically now like investing in these people, protecting their downside by giving them a salary and then helping them with the distribution that Morning Brew has to offer and pumping them out through their channels and the newsletter and the podcast and all the different things they can offer and helping them grow and then taking a share of the upside. So they're protecting their downside, taking a share of the upside. And it's a really interesting model. And I think for Morning Brew, it's smart because it's a way for them to diversify against, you know, the core newsletter business, which I'm sure is still the majority of their business, but probably won't be in a few years um, because you're kind of at a critical mass where like, how much are you really going to grow your newsletter at some point? But I think they're probably on the forefront of that. I think there's a really interesting opportunity there, especially with niche, like niche creators where you like pick an angle. There's all these interesting accounts on Twitter, like strip mall guy and car dealership guy and, you know, all these like the guy things that are now propping up. Um, But these people have built really fervent followings around one specific thing there's this like franchise the wolf of franchises i think well actually you know like work week is another example of a company that's doing this um i think quite well uh and have talked about it a lot but like the wolf of franchises um launched a SaaS product for like people that are looking to acquire franchises and i I saw it i messaged him i I actually don't know who he is i'm saying him it might be might be a woman but i messaged and said like this is super this is that's really really cool super smart i messaged adam the founder of work week and said the same thing because that to me is like so clear down the fairway of at least what I view the future is looking like, um, that it's fun for me just as an observer to see people execute against that. I also want to shout out uh, Blockworks, whose offices we're, 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 we're in um, as a, a really aspiring media company that has also created stars. Uh, they you know, originally produced Pop's show, 
but then also has brought in a lot of uh, creators in-house. It's great this podcast network within the crypto uh, Web3 ecosystem that uh, yeah. inspired me. They've crushed it. And we've obviously seen people come and go in that space. And so to have like Lindy effect, if you will, around surviving bear markets, bull markets, et cetera, and to continue to do well across across different seasons of, of this world, I think it's it's a clear sign of what's to come for them. Yeah. It's a stellar business. The guy, I always thought that Dave Perel should do this, maybe you should do it too, where he goes to everyone who wants to be the guy, basically like the financial services guy, uh, the accountant yeah. guy, the legal guy, and basically says, hey, I'm going to well, you're a lawyer, you're an accountant, you do financial advice. Yeah. I'm going to make you the most important um, service provider on Twitter in exchange for like 10% or 20% of your business. Yeah. Like instead of DeepRo offering $5,000 courses or whatever he's offering, he's making a bunch of money out of it. You know, he's doing great. He could get upside in these. Yeah. It's like a venture fund. You're kind of offering like in-kind services yes. for the upside rather than capital. But um, I think the challenge with some of these creator models, it's like, unless it's for life, it's like investing in a startup in the seed and then you lose out with their series B. Mm -hmm. or something. But when really you invest in C because you want to be access to them when they're big. Yep. And so if they leave you, it's like how much upside is, is there really? And so that's why if you do it in like a business, in like, it, it, I feel like we're not yet there in terms of people feeling comfortable like selling you know a percentage of their future earnings forever. Although maybe in some spaces we are mm -hmm. back on that. But if it's like, hey, I'm the financial services guy and I have a financial services firm, and I did Pro or, or Sahil, I'm going to get 10% yeah. in exchange for these services over the long, long haul. And I own it. Like, mm -hmm. It's vested. Um, I feel like that's the opportunity. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's happened in sports, right? Like these tennis players, like in Russia and things, like have benefactors that pay you know, for all their training early on, and it's for a percent of their future winnings. It's like they invest in a portfolio of tennis players. And if one of them happens to become the number one player in the world, it becomes a great investment. If I'm able to bring value to you up front, I'm basically making you a loan and you're going to pay me back that loan over a period of time. And now it's come up, you know, in like in baseball, it's a big, hot, hotly debated topic that like some of these top baseball players who have made it to the majors have to pay these like exorbitant fees back to these guys that gave them upfront cash when they were in the minors, not making any money. But that's the deal, right? You sign up for whatever it is. You got a benefit from it up front, presumably. And if you didn't, then there's a different question to ask. But if someone can create value for you up front, I mean, it's, again, it's what I think Alex Armozzi is doing with acquisition.com is like, you're getting all these services and you're getting my sales playbooks and all these things up front, but you're giving up a chunk of the upside in your business. And you're willing to make that trade, your eyes wide open about what the trade is, and you're willing to make it. The challenge with creators is like, what is the longevity of what they're actually doing and building? To my point earlier on the career arc, is it five years? Because then like the NPV calculation, it just, it changes the IRR model in your mind, right? Like you're investing in the seed stage of a startup because you think it might be a billion dollar business that's going to go public, spit off a ton of cash, and it's going to be around for 20 years. And if the upside with a big creator is like, they last for eight years and then they go and want to be a writer off living in Bali and just like, you know, go, or like Derek Sivers, right? Like, I don't know how much money he makes per year, but I don't think he makes tons because he doesn't care about money. And like he might have at one point and then he was like, ah, I actually just want freedom and I'm going to go live wherever. Well, now you're kind of shit out of luck because you spent a bunch of time on that person. So I don't know that that is where like there is going to be a really interesting model made. And again, it's like, what game are you playing and what price are you willing to pay to play that game? Um, I'm personally just not particularly motivated by money. 
I would have stayed in private equity if I was, honestly. Like that would have been the the lowest risk path to making X million dollars would have just been to stay on the course. I really want to feel like I'm creating impact with the content I'm creating, which is what I enjoy doing most. So the creative work and all the writing and the content that I put out and feeling like I'm impacting people. Um, and then I want freedom. Like I want to be able to spend tons of time with my son over the next 10 years of his life and any other kids that we might have in the future. And so that is what I'm optimizing for. And there are going to be people who are optimizing for making money that are going to do better than me. And I'm totally okay with that. Like that makes sense to me and they should because they're optimizing for a different thing. But I think for creators, that question is constantly on their mind of like, why do you, whenever you post like a growth chart of something, people are like, why do you care about getting to that? Like, why, you know, like I, I said, oh, my goal is to get to a half a million newsletter subscribers by the end of the year. I said that in January and people were like, well, why? And I actually sat down and had to think about it. Like, why do I care about that? Why does it? it it's just because I like feeling like I'm growing. I like feeling like I'm getting better at the game and that I'm improving at it. I, li I like feeling like I'm figuring things out and sort of hacking at it. And so as long as I feel that way, I want to continue doing it. But some people don't really care. They're like, yeah, yeah I, I'm doing well. Things are good. Like I'm paying the bills. I have freedom, et cetera. And so I don't know that the like creator incubator model will work in a more meaningful way economically. Even if the creator writer gets tired and quits there's still the firm there mm -hmm. and you can hire someone else i mean a law firm model is super smart for something like this right like if you were a legal influencer or something and you could bring in a bunch of business and you just got your cut of the business you were bringing into this law firm because you're like a partner in the law firm in whatever way i think that type of thing is really smart i mean i think more things should actually adopt that like legal yeah. partner model where you like you kind of buy into your stake as a partner and maybe your buy-in is the fact that you have distribution so you're not actually putting capital to bear and then any business you bring in you're like you're effectively like an affiliate of a law firm and that doesn't really exist unless you're a lawyer venture firms do it um right you get scouts but you don't get cash you get carried mm -hmm. and um yeah those same people have access to startups and so service firms that sell to startups should like get a call of these people and yeah we're gonna make this the accounting firm like i don't even know who the accounting firm is for startups and I've been started last decade. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they don't they don't really exist. I'd get pitched on like a hundred, you know, oh, we're gonna completely change how taxes are done, you know, startups a year. It's I I think it's just super interesting because again, like if you lay out the ways that creators have typically made money, yeah. it's basically like products, which is, yeah. you know, courses, actually selling physical products, digital products, ebooks, or it's charging subscribers, or it's ads. And those were kind of the three ways. And like then affiliate stuff came in where you were like, oh, I can actually take a percentage of whatever I'm generating. Then it was like, okay, if I have 20 affiliate deals, why does my audience care about the 20th thing that I'm sharing? Every single one dilutes the value of the prior one because you're no longer, no longer really authentic around it. And so it's sort of like, what's the next paradigm around all of this? Like, what are the other ways that you can possibly make money given what you have as an asset, which is the audience, which is the connection, it's the reach. The other thing to really be aware of is one is not one is not one in terms of a following. And there are a lot of creators who have enormous audiences that I would argue have like effectively no value because they growth hacked their way to a big audience. And it was built on the back of like, here are 10 Chrome extensions that will change your life or here are 10 AI tools that will change your life, whatever the new change your life, whatever the new version of that was, it was built off that. And those people do not care about the individual. They don't care actually about their thoughts, ideas, their life. They're not trying to live like that. You know, it's just like they were falling for like information porn. And that is going to be a very 
tough thing for um, people to realize around this like B2B idea, because I think a lot of people will partner with those large audiences thinking there's an enormous, oh my God, they have 2 million Instagram followers. Like we can go sell, if, even if we sell 0.0001% of them at 10,000 a pop, we're going to make millions and then they're going to get into it. And they're going to convert into zero, literally zero, yeah. not going to be able to convert anyone to a high ticket thing because they don't have any resonance with the idea. There's no product audience fit and it's going to be painful. Um, so that's the other thing to just be aware of is like, if you're an operator listening to this, be very eyes wide open and figure out ways to test whether there's actual product audience fit. Like if you are a business operator running an SEO business, I actually had this happen to me. Good friend of mine, super sharp SEO operator came to me and was like, Hey, we should partner on an SEO business. He's like, I'll bring you in. I'm already doing 50k a month revenue. I think we can take it to 250k a month pretty quickly. You know, I'll give you X percent. This will be great. And I said to him, I was like, dude, I don't know what SEO stands for. Like, and I was sort of being tongue in cheek, but like, I couldn't talk about that to my audience in a credible way and actually get them to convert on maybe a couple just because the size of the audience, but not a lot because there's not a lot of connection there versus someone who has an audience one one hundredth my size, but has built that audience on the back of talking about interesting SEO things. I would partner with that person 10 out of 10 times on it. And he's my friend. I'm able to say that to him very clearly. Most creators won't say that to you. If you come to them, they'll say, yeah, give me the percentage. Great, whatever. So as an operator too, making sure that you're doing diligence on like the credibility and the product audience yeah. fit of this thing. Maybe it's like you start with an affiliate model for a month. Actually, Nick Huber did this with Support Shepherd, the offshoring business yeah. that he is now a co-owner of. He was just doing an affiliate thing with them for like three months. And I think he started making like 30, 40K a month off the affiliate thing because it was working so well before he ended up investing in it to actually become an owner. So doing something like that, where it's like on both sides, try before you buy, yeah. um, does seem really smart. Totally. It is interesting. So on deck and Entrepreneur First and others, you know, help sort of business co-founders find tech co-founders. And it'll be interesting in the future, there should be a program mm. that helps, um, you know, operators find uh, audience co-founders. You know, Paul Graham in 2005 or whenever YC was starting, identified that sort of technical co-founders were underrated or underappreciated. Mm. And you could teach them the business stuff. And now, you know, 18 years later, you know, it's a much more crowded internet. It's easier to build things. You need to get them off the ground. And perhaps uh, distribution is the scarcity. And now maybe audience co-founders or creators yeah. are, um, are underrated. Yeah. I mean, I think attention is the scarce thing. Um, goes way back to what we said at the very beginning of like commerce following attention. Attention, while decentralized and going out to all these different spots is increasingly scarce at the same time because our attention spans are so freaking bad now yeah. because of what has happened with social media. I mean, when's the last time you sat down and watched a two hour movie? Like I can't get myself to do it. And it, I just can't. Like I would much rather watch a 30 minute TV show. Even an hour TV show starts to feel long for me. Succession might be like the last show that I watch that's an hour that I can sit and watch the whole thing because the writing is so good. But our attention spans are really, really short. So attention is scarce and people are having to dole out their limited attention around the like hundred things that are in their ecosystem on a daily basis. And we have a million apps and we have their professional life and your personal life and all these different things. And so someone that actually commands a sliver of that attention, but it's really dedicated yeah. is really valuable. It's why a Twitter audience is so much more valuable than an Instagram audience, in my opinion, because for someone to follow you on Twitter, it's not like a mindless scroll on Twitter, really. Like you're reading. So you're actually actively engaged in the yeah. thing and the piece of content. And then to decide to follow that person, you had to be like actively engaged, think it was interesting enough that you want to get more from that person. And so you click follow. Instagram, it's like 
I can just mindless scroll that. You sit on the toilet. I mean, half people probably spend most of their time on the toilet sitting, scrolling Instagram or TikTok yeah. or whatever it is. It's low, low value scrolling. And so the attention that you're commanding on Twitter, that's why I think those creators tend to be really powerful for these B2B things is really significant. It'll be interesting to see if that translates over to threads now that we have this new platform doing written content. Yeah. So you um, really built your audience just before the pandemic? Uh, uh, no, it's during. May 2020 was when I started writing on Twitter. And you... Um, you went really big on threads um, as a way to get your ideas out there. Mm-hmm. You identified this arbitrage opportunity with threads. What would this file boom if you were starting in June, July, you know, August 2023? Um, where's the opportunity today for the next file boom? Um, I think vit- short form video is, again, like has the most massive tailwind. All of the platforms are going to be prioritizing it. That includes Twitter. And it'll include threads. I I think threads maybe to a lesser extent because Instagram, like Reels, they'll want people there for video. But all of the platforms realize that the ad monetization is driven by engaged viewership and and video is the big driver of that. And so continuing to prioritize that, I would probably spend more time on video now. It's also what I enjoy. Like I enjoy being in front of people and getting to talk and share ideas vocally versus continuing to write is not for everyone. I love writing, but most people don't. It's like, it's tiresome for them. And so I think video and then LinkedIn, I think is like the sneaky arbitrage hack. LinkedIn basically woke up after like 20 years of existence or whatever and realized it was actually a social network and not a professional network and that they should be helping creators create content on the platform related to kind of professional things. It's an amazingly positive platform in terms of what you get because everyone has their job linked to it. And so no one's willing to like say the crazy shit that they're willing to say on Twitter on LinkedIn. And that makes for like a very supportive and nice, if you're a positive person, it makes for a really nice, you know, warm, fuzzy environment. And you can grow really quickly because they've just started to invest in the creator ecosystem there. And people are just starting to come around to it. And it tends to be just like a high leverage. You know, it's one of the first things if you Google anyone's name, their LinkedIn profile comes up. Yeah. So like having a platform there is actually really valuable because the SEO is high. And is the content strategy similar across platforms? Yeah, for me, I mean, Twitter and LinkedIn are very, very similar. I don't create a whole ton of new content for LinkedIn. It's mostly things that I've already shared on Twitter. Again, because it's written content, it's like create once, share 10 times. Video, I mean, I try to generally have a model of like, if I create one idea, how can I distribute it in 10 different ways? And if it's like Twitter and LinkedIn are similar, then it's like newsletter might go deeper on the topic. My book is going to go much deeper on the stuff that I'm most excited about. And then video is like the most high traction ideas that I think are the most powerful and will resonate, you're reaching a totally new audience. Like, I mean, my Instagram following is about 50, 50 male, female, Twitter's probably 85% male, um, just because that's what the platform generally is. And so that's a very different audience of people that might potentially subscribe to my newsletter that may eventually buy a book from me that I can connect with in a different way that like will have pushbacks that are different than the men that are in my audience and will force me to think differently. And that's all upside for me. That's just like a whole ton of value that it creates in my life. So um, that's how I've tended to think about it. Yeah. And podcast. You did a podcast experiment with Greg. That was awesome. Yeah. You stopped doing it after a while. Um, How do you think about podcasting in general in terms of is it worth your time? Yeah. I think podcasting, the depth of connection of a podcast listener who shows up and listens to you every single week is second to none. I mean, like, I think it's more powerful than a YouTube subscriber. I think like someone that has, you know, my first million is a great example of this, like Sean and Sam are both friends of mine. The connection that they have with their audience of people that listen to my first million is unbelievable and impressive to me. It's very, very hard to create a thriving podcast. Arguably the hardest thing I think actually is like, there's no discovery for them. 
it's really hard to reach people. You have to like really bash it through initially. And then there's this like fall off a cliff. And then does it have a reason for being like, is it just another interview show? Cause there's a million interview shows. I'm not going to interview better than Tim Ferriss interviews people or Joe Rogan interviews people. I'm not going to be more controversial than Lex Fritman, you know, in terms of the people I can bring on the show. And so what are you doing? Like, what's the reason for doing it? I could go get someone to pay me to go do an interview show just cause I have a big platform and they would think there was upside in it. But it's a lot of work and you got to book guests and you got to feel like you owe people one because they came on. And so, you know, the question of like, what am I saying no to by saying yes to this? Any new thing I take on right now is like time away from things I really care about, which is like my son and spending time with him and my wife and family. And I would really need to feel like there was a reason and that there was something there. Right now, I feel pretty stretched. Like I'm working on on my book. My general thought is that once I'm sort of through the book and it's coming out, there might be something interesting to do on the back end of that a podcast that sort of plays on similar themes, but it's sort of TBD for now. How do you think about the book from a business perspective? Is is Are books underrated? I should more people have, have books? Should Sean and Sam have books? Should Nick Huber have, have books? Where does the book fit in from a pure business perspective? It's a lot of work. Yeah, pure business perspective. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to just kind of like share share numbers around it. I mean, I... Um, you sell it like you sell a company, at least in a traditional process. I'm doing a traditional publishing process. So I'm publishing the book with Penguin Random House, one of their outfits. You go to like an auction and you kind of pitch your proposal yeah. and you go like on a roadshow and pitch it and people go, you know, bid on your book. And, um, you know, I ended up getting a seven figure book deal, which was fantastic. And, you know, have now sold it in the US, which is the main one, and then the UK, and then maybe like 15 or 20 translation deals now. So it was a great, great big success economically, the vast majority of books aren't like that. And that's an advance. So you get that money up front, but then you have to earn back the advance until you make royalties. And the vast majority of books don't actually earn out the advance. You get the advance and that's what you made on the book. Books are generally not a great thing to do for a financial reason. They might be a good thing to do for your ecosystem. Like if you, if having a book helps you get more speaking gigs and that's a part of what you're trying to build, um, that is often the case, like having a book and then that's kind of your core thing that you go talk about and you're kind of the guy or the girl for that thing, um, that can be meaningful for people. Um, for me, it just felt like the next layer of going deeper, which is what I wanted to do. Like Twitter was the surface level. It's like 240 characters. Newsletter was a little bit deeper than that. I really enjoy writing that. The book was like the next level deeper on this one topic that I really felt a burning desire to write about. This to me was just like, I want this out in the world and I think it should exist. I think it'll help people. But economically, it's hard. I, I think it's it's hard to justify as like a great per hour time investment. So Sean came up to you or, or Sam and said, hey, should I write a book? Would you say, well, it depends how big the advance is, it depends how, like, what are the criteria? Yeah, and like, wh why? Why do you want to write the book, right? It's like actually asking you and being honest with yourself about it. You don't have yeah. to tell me. I don't yeah. care. Um, but uh, why do you want to write? The, like, for, honestly, for me, like, I have an Indian mother. My mom's Indian. My dad's uh, white. My Indian mother is... Um, very discerning about like things that I've done over the course of my life. Like she wanted me to go to McKinsey and she wanted me to, you know, become a doctor or a lawyer and like sort of jokingly, but also kind of serious. Like India has a culture of like those things matter. And so doing a book with Penguin Random House, like that meant something to my mom. It yeah. means something to my grandmother who like tells her friends about it in India. It's like that was part of my decision and rationale for doing it the traditional way versus economically. The best way for me to do it would have been self-publishing. Yeah. I could have made... $12 a book or something like that if yeah. I did it self-publishing versus the advance until I earn it out and then basically $4 a book when doing it through through this means, I would have made way more money self-publishing for sure. I wouldn't have had the upfront advance. I wouldn't have had the credibility right. of doing it with someone like Penguin Random House. 
So knowing why you're doing it and like what the actual rationale is and being honest with yourself about it, which most people aren't willing to do is, um, is probably how I tell people to decide. Also, if you want a book out there, but you don't have the time to write it or you're not a good writer, there are ways to get around that, right? Like there's a company called Scribe that does the, you know, David Goggins book and a bunch of others that will be a premium ghostwriting to like write your book and you can pay them, I don't know, a hundred grand or 50 grand and they'll like give you a book and you'll have a good book out there. So that's the other thing that people can do. Yeah. I think it's a good place to, to wrap. Um, Oh, you your time. Is there anything that we didn't cover that is top of your mind, or you can do that? I think we got to a lot of it. I mean, it's a, it's a cool, you know. There's no easy answer to all this stuff because we're in we're in the early innings of it. It'll be really cool to come back like a year from now and say like, how did that play out versus what we said and what we thought? And I'm sure we're going to be wrong on the vast majority of it, but it'll be interesting yeah, either way. Totally. I feel like you're you're pioneering a new path that a lot of us are. Learning from. I'm having fun at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short form clips directly from Riverside. Because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code MEDIAEMPIRES to get a 20% discount. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech, business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech, with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co.